Uh, if y'all would, would you turn with me to uh, John 11 for the uh, scripture reading this morning? Uh, the text comes from 11 chapter John. We'll be in verses 45 down through uh, 57. So 45 down through the end of the chapter. In John 11. Yeah, John eleven forty five. Would you stand when you find your place? <clears throat> then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this... He did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, come again before you today in the name of Jesus. Lord, we want to come uh, giving you thanks. Uh, Lord, as the, as the psalmist exhorted in the passage we read earlier, that we may come into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Lord, that's, that's the attitude we want to have uh, as we uh, continue this meeting this morning. As your truth is heard and examined, Lord, uh, we pray, examine our hearts. Make your truth effective within us so that we are conformed to the image of Christ, so that we may honor you in all that we do while we remain in this world. Lord, create and increase within us a passion for Your glory, a passion for lost souls that they may come to the knowledge of Christ. Lord, give us an unquenchable passion for truth so that we are continually driven by a desire to know You better and to do Your will. Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. You can be seated. Jesus is a polarizing figure. And we're seeing in the book of John as we move through John's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're seeing this constant contrast. And it's the same way, one where, by the way, that uh, if you're here on Wednesday nights, we're, we're seeing it there as well in our study of 1 John. Same author, the Apostle John. Both books inspired by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they have a very... Uh, uh, of course, the Holy Spirit working through the same human author, they have, there are a lot of commonalities. And this is one. that We see this contrast between those people who are of the world and those people who are of God. And in John's little epistle of 1 John, he just kind of lays it out black and white. He is presumably speaking to believers and and the idea behind that epistle is one of encouragement and an assurance to those who believe on Christ. Here, it's a different genre. What John is doing, although, again, as I said, a lot of the themes are the same, a lot of the same truth is coming out, of course. Um, it's written in a different format because this is narrative. He's telling the story of Jesus. So as we're moving along, we're, we're constantly seeing this divide that, that John articulates so well in his epistle. This, this divide between the people of God and the people of the world. And as we follow Jesus along in His ministry and read about the things that He said and about the things that He did, we, we see the, the difference manifesting among His hearers. Some gladly receive and others willfully reject. Now, I want to do a couple things here today, and part of it is going to be continued tonight, so Lord willing, uh, you know, we'll see you back here at 6. Hopefully you'll be here with us tonight. But we're going to contrast, and I think there's no coincidence, by the way, of course, that this this little um, story that we have here, this little... Uh, um, passage that we, we, uh, Zach just read for us this morning here falls between the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and then the content of chapter 12, which begins again with Lazarus and then with uh, Mary um, and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, Jesus at their home. So again, this contrast is, is highlighted, and, and, and as I said, I want to I bring it out this morning, but I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see it better as we continue tonight. But this contrast is brought out between people of God, those who believe on Christ, love Christ, follow Christ, contrast between them and the people of the world, those who reject Christ, people who are caught up in what we often refer to as this worldly system. And in other words, life is all about here and now, the temporal. And that manifests in many ways. And Lord willing, that's what I'm going to talk about here in a few minutes. But, but we're going to have that contrast. So specifically, here in this passage, you, you've got um, primarily the reaction of uh, the Jewish leaders to Jesus, represented here by the, by the Pharisees and, and uh, the Sadducees, the council of the Sanhedrin. 
And then on the other side, you've got Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and then the people that are mentioned in verse 45 here who presumably um, have genuine faith. So, so again, on the one hand, you've got a positive response to Christ. The people who believed, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and then you've got this negative response to Christ in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, the body of the Sanhedrin. So that's, that's the contrast. And, and again, we've been seeing that all the way through, so this, here it is, it's just once again highlighted. Jesus has addressed it head on. We've looked at some passages, for example, in chapter 8. And Jesus stood and called some of the Jews to their face, um, children of the devil. He said, you, you don't receive my word. My word doesn't have any place in you because you're of your father, the devil. In chapter 10, he expounds on that some more and says, my sheep know my voice and I know them. Um, to back up a little further, chapter 6, he says, the Father, he talks about people whom the Father has given him. All that the Father has given me will come to me. So we've seen this, this contrast all the way through, and we're just seeing it highlighted again here with some examples of how it plays out. Now let's start um, in verse 45, and, and uh, what I'm going to um, really try to uh, focus in on this morning is this concept. The, the threat of truth. The threat of truth. And as I said, Jesus is a polarizing figure. His doctrine has that effect. Um, because it's true, many believe it, love it, embrace it, embrace Him, love Him, follow Him, and many reject. Okay? So you've got two extremes. <clears throat> and then some who appear to be in the middle, but really it's one side or the other. So verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, what did they see? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is, this is a, a following uh, the sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead that we talked about last week. And John, uh, John picks, selects signs that he uses um, throughout the gospel here. Um, I'll say throughout the gospel, this is, we're, we're coming to the, really the end of that portion of the gospel. So he has already used several signs to show the true identity of Christ, to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the, the Christ, the Son of God. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead was one of those. And really it was, it was the climax. Remember the first one was Jesus changing water into wine. And then you know we had several healings like the man at the pool um, that, was, that was healed. And, the, in, and then in chapter 9, the man who was born blind that was healed. Several examples of, of healings and so forth. And then the climax, one raised from the dead, Lazarus. He was dead for four days. And Jesus comes on the scene and commands him to get up, raises him to life. And there is a, a mixed audience of people witnessing these things. So that, as we've noted before, as, as we move along and as Jesus says and does different things, two things happen. One, it's, it appears that more people come to genuine faith. That is, as, as He's going along, uh, some people are following Him because they like the food or because they like what, you know, what they think is the show 
or something of that nature, but then they wind up really struck by the whole thing and realize that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And on the other hand, there's more and more people dropping off, falling away, especially when Jesus says things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He lost a lot of followers that day. They said these are hard sayings. Who could hear it? And many of them, probably most of them walked away, so many that Jesus turned to the twelve and said, will you also leave? And they wisely responded, where would we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So some are coming to faith. Others are being called out. Now, John doesn't give us the nature of the fate of these people in verse 45. We're gonna, I'm just going to assume that it's, that it's genuine. And the reason I say that, um, the reason I even mention that at all is because if you remember back in chapter 2, for example, um, there were some who, quote, believed in him, who as it turns out didn't really believe. Jesus, John says, would not commit himself to them because he knew their hearts. And then later we run into uh, the same thing again in chapter 8. Um, many believed in him, but then when Jesus begins to speak to them, he refers to them as children of the devil. So they weren't true believers. Uh, there was, a, there was a, not, not in the sense that we think of as true believers. They, they believed, they probably believed that he was really sent from God. They probably, many of them believed that he was a prophet. But they weren't seeing him as the Son of God, or to use John's terminology, as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so they're, they're, um, we might, what we might call their, um, their, their, ungenuine faith was, was exposed. It was made manifest. Now, as I said, verse 45, he doesn't tell us. He just says many believe. So we're going to assume that these are true believers. They, that is, they, they've come to faith in Christ. They're believing on Him now, following Him. But, he goes on to say, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, so here's, so here's the threat. Jesus is going about speaking and, and he's doing these miracles, which, by the way, are, are irrefutable. You, you, you might, you might um, have the boldness to um, discount what he says, and they did do that. But it's kind of hard to discount what he's doing when, when they're seeing people before their eyes healed, such as a man who was blind from birth. How do they deny that? How do they persuade the people that it's not real, that it's not really of God, when everybody's seeing it happening before their eyes. So, so some people are coming to faith in Christ, believing on Him, and therein lies the threat. Threat to what? Or, you know, what do, what do I mean by that at all? Well, let's go a little further. Again, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... So now, here you have a picture. Some of the people who, who witnessed what Jesus was doing, specifically raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, and, you know, some of them, they may have seen some of the other signs as well. 
Um, they acknowledge that in verse 47. This man does many signs. They go to the chief priests and Pharisees. Um, we don't know their motives. Maybe this is some of the ones who believe, and they're going saying, hey, this guy's for real, and he's doing, he's doing these great things. Or maybe this is some of his opposition, and they're going to, to stir things up. Either way, it, it does have that effect of, uh, of stirring things up among the chief priests and Pharisees. So they call together the council. This is the Sanhedrin that you sometimes hear about in the Gospels. They're the ruling body of the nation of Israel. Uh, and that, of course, under the Romans. The Romans have had uh, um, authority over the... Uh, Israel was part of the Roman Empire at this point. So uh, Romans had the real authority. But they would let the Jews govern themselves in certain, um, certain areas especially in things concerning religion. And so, so the, the Supreme Court, as it were, everybody ought to be familiar with that term after the past few weeks, right? Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, as it were, of the, of the, uh, of the Jews was the Sanhedrin, a council made up of Sadducees and Pharisees opposing uh, more or less um, parties. had different, different beliefs, but all of them religious leaders. Sadducees more secular, um, the, the Pharisees were more conservative, what, what we would think of as conservative Bible-believing, all right? They, they claimed to believe the Word of God um, and, and practice the Word of God. Um, and, and to some extent, they did acknowledge right things and then, and then added a lot of stuff that was wrong also. So, so you can, again, it's kind of similar to what we see today in our own uh, politics sometimes. You've got uh, the more secular, liberal, you might say, versus the more conservative um, and more religious. But they have this in common. They all oppose Jesus. And they all feel threatened by Him. See, here's the threat. Many believe on Him. Well, since the Jewish leaders reject Him then for the people to believe on Him, for, for, the, for the number of believers to be growing, is very problematic for them. So they get together in verse 47 and say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. You see, they cannot, they cannot deny that. Why then don't they acknowledge that in a, in a more positive way, not just acknowledge that He's doing it, but, but acknowledge and embrace Him. Why don't they say this man is performing many signs? It's obvious He's sent from God and therefore uh, you know, we ought to learn from Him, submit to Him, and so forth. Well, I think the reasons are, are, are strongly hinted at here in the next few verses, if not stated explicitly. Verse 48, if we let him go on, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So there's, there's the threat again. What, what they are seeing as a threat. If we let him continue, everyone will believe in him. And, and to them, that is a, a bad thing. That's a bad outcome. And then they go on. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now there's the fear. If we let this thing go, 
And we let Him go like He's going now. Pretty soon everybody will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. I mentioned a moment ago that they are under Roman rule at this time. So as far as sovereignty, they, they have no sovereign nation. They are under the sovereign control of the Roman Empire. They are subjects of the Roman Empire. And so here's part of the fear. If, if he goes on and his following builds, and they know this from past history with, uh, with other... Um, you know, and they're, they're kind of thinking of Jesus as possibly a, a rebel leader. And they, they know from past his, history other rebel leaders have been put down by the Roman government. And everybody suffers because of it. In other words, when the Romans march in to crush the rebellion, well, whoever's in the way gets crushed as well. So they say, if he goes on, everybody will believe in him. The Romans are going to feel threatened. That's the idea here. They're going to think it's an uprising. And they're going to come in and take away our place and our nation. So while they're not sovereign at this point, they have what you might call, and I know this is kind of an oxymoron, but still the term gets used, what you might call a, a limited sovereignty. In other, in other words, the, the Romans would, to a degree, leave them alone to their own business as long as they didn't rock the boat, as long as there was no significant disturbances. But if we have another guy rising up and followers are accumulating to him, the Romans will read that as an uprising and they'll come in and squash us. We'll lose our place in our nation. That's the fear. That's the fear. And what are they referring to? Well, I, I, I can sum it up this way, and then, I'll, and then I want to unpack it a little bit. But just to, just to put it in a sum statement, um, I think what they're saying is we will lose our way of life. We'll lose our way of life that we cherish. Now, specifically, I think they're referencing these two things in, in uh, verse 48. Our place, I think, is probably a reference to the temple. So they're saying the Romans will come and take away our temple, our place of worship, our holy place. And remember, the temple in Jerusalem is not... Um, just another building like today. Um, if our um, church building were destroyed, I mean, I, you know, of course we wouldn't be happy about that. It would be a bad thing. In fact, it's happened in the past. Brother Freddie's told me about a fire that destroyed this building back in the 60s. But if, if our building were destroyed, well, I mean, you, just, you can meet somewhere else. The church can meet somewhere else. Or we can build another building or we can go down and join another church or you know meet in their building or rent their building or whatever it's not as devastating as would be for the temple the, the temple is the in, in 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 the old testament economy the old covenant economy the temple was the place of worship the supreme place the primary place so that would be a uh, a terrible thing for them to lose the temple. So they fear that. And they say our nation. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they, they would lose even the limited sovereignty that they have so that they are 
They are wiped out as a, as a nation, as an entity. Now, interestingly enough, uh, these things happened anyway, um, despite their efforts to preserve them. In 70 A.D., um, just some 35 or 40 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, the Romans, under the leadership of the Roman general Titus, um, moved in and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. And so these things did indeed happen uh, years later. Uh, so they, they, they were, they were going to happen anyway. But this is the fear. So, so the, the threat, of course, is that people are following Jesus. The fear is that the Romans will take it as some kind of uprising and come in and destroy them. Now, at the heart of that is what, what you might call the ultimate fear for, for these Jewish leaders. And that is the loss of their place and nation. Or as I said a moment ago, the loss of their way of life. Now here's, here's what I want us to think about here in, uh, in making application here. Now let me just put it in question form. Because this is, this is, this is something for, for us to consider, even, even as Christians, um, that, that we might constantly kind of... Uh, Test ourselves with and and uh, and check our 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 affections and our motivations um, by by the grace of God to keep them on track. What is it that we cherish more than truth? Is there anything, or maybe things, plural? Is there anything that we cherish more than truth? In fact, we could say it this way. It might be more helpful, but Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Is there anything that we cherish more than Jesus? That we would con- anything that we would consider worth keeping even if it meant missing out on Jesus. Now, probably most of the time, and, and this is the tricky thing, probably most of the time when and if we fall into that trap, even if it's momentary, which hopefully hopefully it is if it happens at all, but if we fall into that trap, it's not because we thought it through and articulated it that way. I mean, we it's not because we consciously said, you know what? I think this, whatever the thing is, I think this is worth keeping more than Jesus. Now, we probably haven't done that. We probably just kind of let our affections run away with us toward that without thinking. So, in other words, practically that's what we're saying and doing. This is worth keeping. This is worth more than Jesus. Even if it causes me to miss out on Him, I would rather have this. We're doing that in a practical sense, even if we're not consciously thinking that way or verbalizing it. And that's the danger. And that's how Satan works because he works through deception. He works through deception. He comes as an angel of light. He doesn't usually you know, come knocking on the door and say, Hello, I'm Satan and I, w- I want to steer you away from Christ. 
No, He comes as an angel of light. He comes in, in ways in which He can deceive you into thinking that perhaps whatever it is that you're choosing or falling in love with that is actually taking Christ's place, you're, you're thinking, and or we're thinking, that somehow that's enhancing our relationship with Christ. Somehow that it's God-sent. Somehow that we do God better service if we hang on to that. And a lot of times at the heart of it is nothing more than our own sinful lust. In other words, it's, it's what we like, it's what we desire, it's what we want, it's what we think best for us. It's our preference. Now, I think that's what's at work here. In other words, right before their eyes, in their midst, they have Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, doing miracles, speaking like no man ever spoke before. Truth in the flesh. Right in their midst, right before their eyes, But the problem is, to accept Him, to embrace Him, to follow Him, would mean a radical change of course in life. A radical change of way of life, way of living. Now, let me hone in again on the two things they mention here. Let's unpack that a little bit. If we let Him go on like this, verse 48 says, everyone will believe in Him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. <clears throat> now I said, when they say take away our place, they're probably referring to uh, the temple. Possibly they have in mind something like their position. You know, take away our place. In other words, our place of... Of, uh, of authority and so forth, because these are uh, the, the rulers of the, the Jewish religion here in Jerusalem. But I think they're probably referring to the temple. So, so let's, let's characterize this two ways. First of all, our, they, they will take away our place. So there's, there's a reference to their religion. And remember, these are the Jewish leaders. These are not secular politicians. These are the high priest. That is, the high priest himself and also members of his family uh, fall into that group. Um, Priests who are um, members of his immediate family. The high priest at this time is Caiaphas. Sometimes in the Gospels you'll see Annas uh, mentioned. That's that's Caiaphas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was still alive at this time. And so sometimes he's referred to as a high priest because he held the office uh, before Caiaphas. Caiaphas held the office for 18 years. Um, so it's kind of like, just to draw a little bit of a parallel, um, we still refer to President Bush as President Bush, right? Because that title stays with him even though he's out of office. Um, so Annas is referred to as the high priest. Caiaphas is referred to as the high priest. But Caiaphas is the acting high priest at this time. So you've got Caiaphas and, and the other, um, those of his household, the high priest, 
And then you've got the Pharisees who make up the conservative body that we talked about a minute ago. Um, in fact, the term Pharisee means separated ones. So their lives are supposedly dedicated to God's work and God's will. And uh, the, the, their scribes, most of the scribes were Pharisees, vice versa. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a Pharisee before his conversion. So, so these are men who knew the Word of God. They knew the Bible. I heard somebody uh, say the other day, um, this is true, um, say you, you, you see, as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus and the Pharisees disagree on many things about what the Bible means, what Scripture means, but you never see them disagree on what Scripture is. They didn't disagree on that. In other words, they, they knew what books made up Scripture, and they knew that it was the Word of God. They were in agreement with Jesus on that, although they interpreted things wrongly often. So they're kind of the conservative branch, and then you've got um, also the, the Sadducees. But they're all, they make up this body of Sanhedrin, and they are the elite, the leaders of the Jewish religion. So, if someone comes along like Jesus has done here, and they find themselves at odds with Him, then to embrace Him and follow Him and acknowledge that what He is saying and doing is true, to acknowledge that He is right, would mean the loss of their status that they hold in their religion. And they would rather have their own man-made religion than to have truth. Truth. And they're right about one thing. Truth is a great threat for man-made religion. I mean, it, it'll knock the legs right out from under it. And Jesus was constantly doing that, wasn't He? You've heard it said, but I say to you, and He'd give them a correct interpretation of the law. Something to that effect. Or He would just expose their hypocrisy. Doing things like allowing children to dishonor their parents while giving money into the temple treasury. Not only allowing that, but they encouraged that. Jesus would expose that kind of hypocrisy. Truth, truth is a, is a great threat to false religion. They're right about that much. And they're right about the fact that their world as they know it would just crumble if they follow Jesus. What they're wrong about is which is better. In other words, for all that to happen would be better. But they don't see it that way. Their preference is to hang on. To hang on to their power, the power that they have in their place. To hang on to their power. To hang on to all of, of the, the, the life as wrong as it may be. Because they prefer it. Because they're used to it. Because they like it. Because it's their custom. Because it's their culture. That's a dangerous snare. 
to reject truth in favor of culture or custom. So they'll take away our place and they'll take away our nation. And that's probably uh, even a better way of describing the kind of culture that we're used to. I mean, we, we think today, um, and, and they did as well, uh, in, in terms of ethnicity and uh, subcultures, people groups. And they, they saw themselves, and it's funny how this is the way it usually works, whatever, they saw themselves as superior than others. That's usually the way it works, isn't it? Whatever, whatever ethnic group you're a part of, I'm a part of, whatever ethnic group I'm a part of, that's the superior one. <laughs> whatever, whatever subculture I'm a part of, that's the superior one. That's the better one. You just got to convince everybody else to do it my way, right? And that's the way they thought too. So they had an allegiance to their, to their ethnicity or to their nation as it's worded here. That superseded truth. That they preferred over truth. Truth, truth might destroy that. The truth is, maybe I'm no better than anybody else. The truth is, maybe I've got a handle on some things, and those people over there have a handle on some things, and maybe I can learn from them. But they feared losing that. You see this a lot in the Christian world in our country today. We've got a, we've got a preferred way of life. We've got, a, we've got a way that we hold as right and true that we like to retain, we like to hold on to, we like everybody else to come in line with. The problem is, we don't spend the sufficient time a lot of times in seeing if, if it lines up with the Word of God. Because our, our passion ought not be for our nation or our place, our, our religion, our ethnicity or nationality or whatever it is. Our passion ought to be for truth. For truth. And that's what's at stake here. One more thing in the few, few uh, moments we have left here. I don't want to stop without touching on this prophecy here from the high priest. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. What an interesting statement. Now, watch what John says about this. Verse 51, 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now this is one of those places where there's, there's a, a dual meaning in the words of Caiaphas. What he meant, that's, that's meaning number one, what, what Caiaphas meant, and the second meaning is um, what God meant. John tells us in verse 
51 here that he was speaking as a prophet because he was a high priest. That's interesting, isn't it? Because he didn't know he was doing that. This is just a, a, a sovereign act of providence. God speaking through this ungodly man because he did sit in the office of high priest. So first of all, what did Caiaphas mean by that statement? Well, it's really difficult to say precisely, but one thing is clear from the text. His motivation was totally wrong. In other words, he's thinking that if we can rid ourselves of Jesus then we can hold on to our way of life. The, the rest of the nation will be fine. So, so he's okay, in other words, with an innocent man dying if we can keep the status quo. Now, now we understand th there are times um, when the good of the whole uh, takes presidents over, over the welfare of one individual. I mean, thankfully, we, we have, throughout the history of our country, for example, men and women who have been willing to lay their lives on the line, whether in the military or in, on the police department or fire, whatever it is, men and women who have been willing to lay their lives on the line for the good of the whole, the whole community, the whole nation. But the problem here is, it's not somebody stepping up and willingly doing that that, that Caius is talking about. He's talking about murdering somebody for what he considers to be the benefit of the nation. And he's okay with that. So his motive is all wrong. And what exactly he means by it is better, um, in other words, how exactly that would play out, we don't know. He doesn't... He doesn't expound on that. But now, the second meaning we understand. In other words, as I mentioned a moment ago, he, he spoke those words because God providentially moved on him to speak those words with this meaning. That is, God has a different meaning than Caiaphas. And God's meaning is this, that Jesus must die in order to prevent the nation from perishing. One man has to die so that the whole nation doesn't perish. And then John gives us a little um, explanation along with that. First he tells us Caiaphas said those things because he was a high priest. He prophesied, in other words, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, John says, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, so while Caiaphas is thinking we can sacrifice this man for the sake of the nation of Israel, John gives us what is really going on in the, in the spiritual realm, you might say, Christ, the Son of God, will be sacrificed not only for the Jews, not only for the nation, the nation of Israel, but also for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, one way or the other, 
And this is what I want to close with. One way or the other, truth is on the altar. Either by, by men, mankind, human beings, who are willing to sacrifice truth, that is, to give up what is right, what is true, what is godly, what is ultimate, to sacrifice that for our own preferences. That's what Caiaphas was willing to do. Here's a man that's done nothing wrong. He's, he's done nothing but good, but we'll let him die so that we can keep our way of life, our preferred way of life. Or the other option is this. We can embrace God's way of sacrificing truth, which is not to cast it aside, not to devalue it, but to show the ultimate value of it. And God puts truth Himself in the person of Jesus Christ on the altar for the sins of His people. The One who alone is worthy to be an atoning sacrifice for the sins, not only only of believers in Israel, but of all of God's people who are scattered abroad. So, truth does indeed threaten our, our way of life. But as Christians, of course, we should realize that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because we need to put the old way of life down and put it away and let truth invade it and overcome it and go passionately after Jesus who is Himself truth. And embrace truth on the altar in that sense that God gave His only begotten Son the truth, the way, the truth, the life for the nation and for all of God's people who are scattered abroad so that, as John 3.16 says, all who believe on Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Are you and I, are we casting truth aside in favor of our own preferences. I mean, in, in any area, because this is something we've got to constantly be on the watch against. Are we willing to put truth aside? Jesus and His better way. Put that aside to maintain our, our way of life and what we esteem to be better. Or are we willing to pursue Christ Do we want truth? Do we desire truth more than anything else? Would you stand, please? We'll look at an example tonight, <clears throat> Lord willing, of not just one, but actually three people at least that, um, that wanted Jesus. Wanted Jesus. And I hope that's your choice today. hope you would say, I choose Him.
I choose him. What's set before you, what's set before Caiaphas, what's set before me, what's set before those who saw the miracles of Jesus is life and death. You, you choose truth, that's where the abundant life is. Remember that? We talked about that back in chapter 10. To follow anybody or anything else other than Jesus is death. Is death. Let's pray.